This is episode 71 of the 99 Forever podcast. I'm Eric Friesen, and joining me to recap games three and four of the Edmonton Oilers' second round series against the Vegas Golden Knights is a graphic design enthusiast who goes by the handle Oilers Digital on Twitter, Kevin Newfelt. Kevin, how are you doing tonight? I'm doing great, Eric. How are you? I'm good, man. It's good to talk to you again. I've uh, been looking forward to having you back on the show. We've just had to try and find a time to do it after, you know, planning to uh, record an episode at some point during the season. And, All season long, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Just found finally found a night that worked for both of us. And uh, and also, that's the first time we've recorded an episode since you designed the new logo for the podcast last summer. And I know I've told you this off air, but I just want to say thank you again for creating such an awesome logo for me. All I gave you was a basic outline of what I would like, and you made it better than I ever could have expected. So thank you, buddy, for I'm doing that. that. Oh, no problem. And, uh, yeah, oh, I mean, it was fantastic. And everyone I showed it to said how professional it looked and how cool it looked with the the design and the, the Oilers colors and everything. And um, I mean, I love that you use the, the Oilers number font from the, their jerseys and the retro style microphone. Uh, but my favorite part of the logo is the silhouette of Wayne Gretzky lifting the Stanley Cup. Obviously, this is the 99 Forever podcast. I'm a big Gretzky <laughs> fan. So uh, just even seeing that silhouette, you instantly recognize that it's Gretzky. I- I'm interested, though, how did you create the artwork for it? Um, because like I said, even without the number nine, you, 99, you can tell it's the great one. Yeah, well, that's I guess that's what I was going for. Um, but yeah, when we talked about doing a new logo for you, then that's something that uh, I had in my mind making making a silhouette of Gretzky, putting his number on there, just like exactly what you said, making it recognizable without, I guess, seeing the face and everything. Um, but how I did that is I went and I dug and I dug for the perfect picture. I tried pulling it up today what picture that was and I just couldn't find it I just remember had to dig for a while just to get that perfect one where it's at the just at the right angle uh, because if it's a little bit slanted then you get the distortions and everything so I guess I managed to finally somewhere find the the perfect picture and then uh, I get the silhouette I bring it into my designing software and then I actually just trace it out so just making little lines at a time and then I curved those lines and then I just curved it around the outline of Gretzky and the cup and everything. And then that's what you get. It takes I a mean, bit of time. Yeah, um, I was going to say, looking at that logo, with <laughs> it, it almost looks like he has sort of the longer hair. So I'm thinking it might be the first Stanley Cup in 1984. Um, and I was just wondering, like, how long of a process does it take to, you know, go from start to finish? Because... Like I said, I, I did kind of give you a, a brief idea of what I uh, would like, but uh, for you to sort of use, you know, your own imagination and sort of create this this logo, I'm just c- curious. I'm like, even the design, how you have there's some like faint 99s all along the background. If someone's seen the picture, they'll understand what I'm talking about. I just want to know like the the total length of time to put something like that together. Actually, it's a whole lot less than you would think. Um, designing on computer, I feel like I'm cheating sometimes because it can be so easy with the technology that we have at our disposal. Um, the logo itself took a bit longer because, like I said, 
tracing out the player. Um, but once I had that, then it actually came together pretty quick. Um, like you mentioned there, I used the the font from the Oilers numbers, the same ones that I'm using for the for the wallpapers. And so I just pulled that in there. Um, yeah, really, total time spent on your logo is probably between an hour and two hours of actual designing, I would say. Well, now I don't feel too bad that I, that I <laughs> <laughs> was worried I was going to make you spend uh, like days putting it all together. So I'm glad to hear that it wasn't a too strenuous of a process. Yeah, um, no, I thought it was actually going to be a lot more. I thought I was going to be sending you the original and then you would think, okay, we're on our way. And then we'd have some tweaks and we'd go back and forth. Usually there's a bit of back and forth, but. Uh, no, I loved it. I loved it. The, the first, the first uh, picture you sent me, I said, that's the one. Don't change a thing. <laughs> I mean, it was, like I said, it was better than I could have hoped for. So that's awesome, man. And okay. I mean, it, it's a great logo. I plan on using it for a long time. Uh, the other thing I wanted to ask you was just. Uh, you recently brought out the new playoff edition Oilers wallpapers last month. And for anyone listening who doesn't know this, Kevin was creating custom wallpapers for Oilers fans with any name and number they wanted. Uh, how many times a year do you come out with a new wallpaper and how early do you start planning the new design? <laughs> I'll start with the planning. The planning is usually about uh, maybe an hour before I release it. <laughs> Um, I've, I haven't put a plan to any of this. I've kind of just been, uh, going on a whim for most of it. Even when I started, uh, last year, actually, I first started this, or I got the idea on my way to work. I think it was the day of, or the day before game one against Calgary in round two. And then I designed it up. And I think that afternoon I did the first giveaway <laughs> and, uh, just kind of kept it rolling. And then from there on, so far, I counted it before. And I've done 22 different NHL-themed wallpapers in oh, total. Wow. None of it really planned out. I think there were a couple where I had an idea, maybe a couple of days beforehand, like the reverse retro. That's one that I was waiting and waiting and waiting to do. But uh, other than that, the rest were just... Yeah, I remember the reverse retro one. Didn't you do a, a Canadian-themed one, too, with Team Canada? Yeah, I did. Yeah, Team Canada. Usually, it's I get I get the idea that day, and then I have a couple couple hours of free time, or it looks like my afternoon is going to be not too busy, so it's like, hey, that would be a good time. And so I try to quickly whip something together, and then once I have it, like once I have the design, then it's only a matter of a few seconds per Per request, like 30 well, seconds to a minute, and then I can get it done. I mean, hopefully we'll get a an Olympics or a, a World Cup of Hockey here in the next uh, the next couple of years, and you'll be able to put together some new Team Canada stuff. But, oh, yeah, uh, I'd love to. And also, I, I'm sure uh, with the Oilers going back to their original colors, uh, I, I don't know if you had a preference, but I... I love going back to the original royal blue and orange, and I think that it's made your designs even that much better that you get to use those colors now. That's awesome. Myself, personally, I love the orange and the navy that they were they were doing. Like, I love these too, so I don't, I don't know. I'm pretty indifferent that way. Like, I think they both look really sharp. I like the... I mean, I, I didn't have a big issue with the... Uh, the orange and navy ones. Although I wish that they could have still kept 
the royal blue ones while maybe having that orange one as the third. Yeah. And, and the yeah. W the the WHA inspired orange jersey that they brought out in 2015 at the at the draft when Connor was picked first overall. That was the one they should have sticked with. Going with that brighter shade of orange and switching to navy. Like I said, I didn't have a problem with it. Connor had many great moments in that jersey, so I'll I'll always be looking back at that jersey for the rest of my life. But um, when I think back to the original one that he wore when he started with the Oilers, that one I just think it's a it's a jersey that the Oilers actually wore during their early days as a franchise in the 1970s. Um, it's a, a jersey that they wore during their first playoff run in over a decade. <laughs> and and McDavid, like I said, that was his rookie jersey. So uh, I I don't know. I just think if they would have kept the royal blue and and orange set that they had and that their classic design and then had the orange jersey be their alternate that would be the perfect kit for them as a third you mean as a third yeah as a third yeah it would and uh, who knows maybe we'll see that again in the future there's obviously a an outdoor (laughs) game coming this fall at commonwealth stadium so there's bound to be a new jersey i saw a couple rumors that it might be something similar to what the Edmonton Mercury's wore back in the early 1950s. Oh yeah, so we, I saw that too. We, we could see like a completely new design unlike anything the Oilers have ever worn before. So, I'm interested to see, to see what they end up doing with that. Yeah, same here. And of course, you know that a wallpaper's coming with that too. So, <laughs> I bet. Uh and uh, of all the wallpapers you've done, which one do you think was the most popular with Oilers fans? I think the very first one that I did, just because I guess it was new to everyone, then I think that one definitely got the most the most reach. But I guess then at the same time, I did all their different jerseys. <laughs> the orange one, uh, their white one at the time, the, the navy that they were in the playoffs. And then there were a few requests for the royal, so I actually made that up then already, just with some tweaks this year, I guess, or did some tweaks this year. Um, but I was kind of surprised at how many requests that my city edition one did in the middle of the summer there. I, just, I remember that one again, with the, the Edmonton skyline, right? Yeah, and then uh, just with a complete, just went completely different, did a different font for the for the numbers and the text, and yeah, that one got. A lot more attention than I thought, for sure. Yeah, that's I really cool. Well, I can tell you, I have a, a McDavid 97 one with the, the Royal <laughs> Blue that you, you put together for me back in April. And hopefully I'll be uh, keeping that for a, a long playoff run to come. Um, <laughs> but no, that that's awesome, man. And honestly, best of luck going forward with all of it. Uh, I'm sure that you're only going to keep getting requests from here. And uh, like we just briefly touched on, if, if there is a a new logo that comes out in October for that heritage classic game. Uh, I'd look forward to seeing what you end up coming up with for that. Yeah, absolutely. I'm looking forward to putting something together. It's always nice when there's, uh, I guess, easier ideas to come up with now when there's not really much going on or different stuff going on, then you have to think outside the box a little bit, but yeah, for sure. All right, let's start with uh, game three. Now we've got two games to break down. Uh, this one <laughs> was far less enjoyable than uh, game four, which we'll get to a little later. But 
Uh, after earning a split on the road in Vegas, the Oilers return home to Rogers place on Monday night, looking to take their first lead in the series. And the Oilers did strike first just under four minutes into the game. But the Golden Knights responded with five unanswered goals to claim a 5-1 win and a 2-1 series lead. Kevin, do you think the Oilers thought this was going to be a cakewalk after dominating the Knights a couple days earlier? Or why do you think they struggled so badly in Game 3? Well, I sure hope they didn't think it was going to be a cakewalk. And I I highly doubt it. I doubt Woodcroft would even let that. uh, Because they knew they were playing a really good Vegas team and one that that is dangerous, especially 5-on-5. I think myself, along with everyone else in oil, oil country after they scored that first goal in game in game three there i thought i thought there was going to be a runaway again just like game two because they were just flying but vegas did exactly what they did in game one they answered pretty much immediately and they killed that momentum and they just kept hammering back and there just wasn't enough of a response like Edmonton did have their chances throughout the first period there. Like, Drysettle hit, what, two posts and then had another one time where he had the open net, but it was blocked. And so could have easily had three there. But after, just... And you think if out. one of those go in, it might change the entire momentum of the game and give the team a boost on the bench. But, you I know... So. Sorry, go ahead. No, um, not to cut you off there, but yeah, I, th- I totally think so. I think that would have, um, I think that uh, would have helped them just to regain that momentum. Just like I said, just like in game one, where they they had the, that momentum killed, and then and then Vegas kept coming, right? But yeah, I think if even one of those would have gone in, they would have had that extra spark they need. The crowd would have obviously been loud, just like Rogers Place always is. And I think it would have been a different game, but that's how it goes. Yeah, that was a tough break. And it's sort of like you said, the first five or six minutes, it looked like, you know, this is going to be a continuation of game two. The Oilers are going to roll here. But once Vegas got back on track, it just seemed like the Oilers had nothing left to give. And I was just waiting for that pushback all game, and it didn't come. And, um, (laughs) you know, they they did get some chances, like you said. The the two on one rushes where Drysital hit the post, uh, uh, that would be the their best one that they had all night. Uh, McDavid had a good look early too that he passed off. I would love to see him take that shot when he's about ten feet out. Um, I think to me the most frustrating thing is that they followed up their best and most complete effort of the playoffs with easily their worst showing of the playoffs. Yeah. That was probably the most flat effort that I think I've seen from the Oilers since a game in Montreal back in mid-February. I remember they beat the Ottawa Senators the the day before. It was back-to-back afternoon games on a weekend, and uh, they didn't have much trouble with the Sens at all. And then next game, they go into a a game against Montreal that was actually missing quite a few players from their roster due to injury, and you figured that the Oilers were going to roll over them as well. And they just didn't have it right from the start, and this undermanned Habs team beat them. And that, I mean, that was how long ago we're, we're coming up on three months ago from that. And they haven't had a stinker that bad in, in that amount of time. So to see this game 
from them was very uncharacteristic of what we watched uh, this Oilers team do down the stretch. Uh, I think the other thing is, no, sorry, go ahead. No, I I just think we got spoiled seeing the Oilers play at such a high level for so long for that, that tear they went on at the end of the year and they carried it into the playoffs. They've had a lot of good games and, I mean, they set, a, they set a franchise record this year going 21 straight games without a regulation loss, and that's between the regular season and playoffs. But still, that's something that even the 80s Oilers never accomplished. So uh, for all these great dynasty teams to not even be able to put together that long of a run. Now, obviously, three-on-three overtime impacts it a little bit, and that's an advantage to you know this current group. But still... Um, the, the Kings, both of their wins in the first round were overtime uh, wins. So the Oilers didn't suffer their first uh, regulation loss in nearly eight weeks until they lost uh, game one in Vegas. And, you, you know, when Vegas brought in their third string goalie, Aiden Hill, after Laurent Brassois was injured, the Oilers barely tested him. And I thought, this is your opportunity now. Vegas has continually had goalie after goalie go down and you have to get some rubber on this guy, make him work. And I just didn't feel like they gave him any nearly uh, enough of the high quality shots that they should have been every opportunity. They should have been firing the puck on him and they just made his night way too easy. Uh, I thought a lot of defenders were also awful in game three. It It was probably, Matthias Ekholm's worst game as, as an Oiler. And, you know, he's been fantastic since he arrived. So that's saying a lot. Uh, Evan Bouchard had a really bad night as well. Uh, I think kind of uh, capitalized by, you know, when he tripped over <laughs> his own feet. Yeah. Uh, that led to a two-on-one rush that the, the Vegas Gold Knights ended up scoring on. I believe it was a Jack Eichel goal. Jack so, Eichel, yeah. Yeah, so a, a frustrating one there. They also took way too many undisciplined penalties in the game, and uh, they had a goal taken off the board due to goaltender interference, and then they gave it right back less than 30 seconds later. So that could have been an opportunity to build some momentum. You're playing four-on-four, and this is when the Oilers should thrive, and yet they they get a break and just allow Vegas to go right back down the ice and score. So that's kind of when you knew it wasn't going to be their night, and just overall, I felt that the Golden Knights were hungrier in every facet of the game. Yeah, absolutely. You you just said it. They they were hungrier, and with uh, with Brossois going down, I think they did a good good job just shutting the Oilers forwards down. They didn't uh, they didn't give them much after that, right? Like, yeah, no, not at all. And Brossois went down, and here we thought. We had this golden opportunity with the the backup in that, and he's what their third string, fourth string goalie. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, depending on where you consider Jonathan Quick on the the depth chart, but yeah, I mean, you could even call him the fourth technically. Um, but just yeah, it's, it, it was frustrating to see them sort of come out flat and on home after playing five out of the last six playoff games on the road. You're finally back at Rogers Place. This is an opportunity to feed off the crowd, and I just, they brought their, you know, uh, I would say their D minus effort. And we know that when the Oilers play up to their capability, when they bring their A effort or A plus effort, I don't think there's anyone that can beat them. 
but it's just a matter of doing that consistently. And, and, you know, through two of the first three games of the series, I didn't think the Oilers were very good. Absolutely. Like you, like you said there, when they're playing their A game, I like them against anyone, anyone Uh, in the league. Yep, definitely. Especially any team still remaining in the playoffs. And, you know, in game one, yes, the, the score was relatively close. It was a five, four game. Um, that Vegas scored an empty netter on to make it six, four, but really in that game, I thought Vegas outplayed Edmonton for the most part. Leon Dreisaitl was just a man on a mission though. And he sort of almost single-handedly kept his team in scoring four goals. Uh, also became the first oiler to score four goals in a playoff game since Yari Curry back in 1987. So that's, uh, it's a shame that that, that effort was kind of wasted, but we won't go too far back there. We'll stick with game three. I want to talk to you about Evander Kane now. And look, while I don't think that officiating was the reason the Oilers lost game three, it definitely was frustrating to see two blatant high sticking penalties on Kyler Yamamoto and Ryan McLeod that went uncalled, especially when Vegas scored shortly after Yamamoto was whacked across the face by Eichel's stick. And then he helped set up the go ahead goal and then at the end of the period, with tensions kind of starting to boil over, Kane took an undisciplined cross-checking penalty up high on Alex Petrangelo. Uh, Kevin, I don't want Kane to lose the fire and aggressiveness that makes him an effective player, but as the playoffs go on and the games become more important, he can't be taking those type of penalties. Uh, would you want to see him dial it back a bit, or would you rather him keep playing his antagonizing style and if he ends up in the box from time to time then that's just something that we have to live with i think honestly it's just something you got to live with with kane like that's the that's the style he plays that's the style he's played for years it's the style that he played back even when uh when he was with the jets for example i remember when the oilers are playing the playing the jets this this one game that was however many years back and just seeing the attitude and the demeanor that he had you hated him you hated every time he was on the ice he was pushing your guys around he was punching them and then he'd go and put the puck in the back of the net I just remember thinking man how amazing would it be if we could have a player like that and now we have him and yeah he takes stupid penalty from time to time but He's also a guy you love to have out there and have on your team. Like you said, you hate to play against him, but you love to have him on your bench. And exactly. And I, I, don't, I, mean, I don't think you want to, I don't think you want him to turn it down because if he's no. dialing it down, then uh, he's not providing that, that intensity. He's not providing that, that rivalry, like that hatred from the other team. He's such a unique player too, because not only is he, he's fast, He's big, he's strong, he's tough, and he can score goals. Like, he might honestly be the best fighter on the Oilers, but also he is one of their best shooters. So you don't really see too many players like that in the league where he's a sniper but also an enforcer. And when you can have a player like that out there to look after the the team's top stars, that's just one of the reasons I like him playing with Connor McDavid. The, the fact that he's also a, a natural finisher and that with one of the best passers in the world, getting him the puck in good spots, he's going to bury those opportunities. But the, you know, the fact he can also 
stand up for Connor and defend him in situations, that's huge too. Yeah, absolutely. It's absolutely it's huge. And the fact that he with the play too. Um, we've seen players in the pa- in the past put on McDavid's line to enforce the play, but they couldn't keep up. He's like worked Lucic. well with big tough guys. Like Lucic had a brief run with him that that was effective. Patrick Maroon was a, a better example of someone who worked absolutely. with. Absolutely, that was a good one. And then you look at Evander Kane, who is. Uh, a more skilled hockey player than those guys, certainly a lot faster, can at least keep up with Connor. I, I think that as as much as he does well with a sniper, he does really well with a power forward who goes hard to the net too. Yeah, absolutely. Someone who can just break in there and have a stick in the way. Someone uh, who's hard to move. Yeah, and as far as I'm concerned with dialing it back, I just want him to be smart in certain situations. Like you're almost tempting the refs to give you a penalty in that situation. Because Absolutely. And as a fan, it's, it's frustrating to watch as they're trying to build momentum. Then he gets called for something like, yeah. And I'm not going to say the Oilers haven't gotten away with some penalties in this series too, because they have, but the, the edge has definitely been uh, to the, the golden Knights in terms of, the power plays and the there was the one game where they were all out of sorts and that was in game two and uh, the Vegas actually took the least amount of minor penalties of any team in the regular season and in the playoffs in that game they just the, their head coach Bruce Cassidy said it after the game that it was just such a uncharacteristic game for them they got sucked into taking all these penalties and Edmonton capitalized and, you know, this is something I talked about in the, the series uh, against the Kings last round, but everyone in the league, including the officials, is aware of how lethal the Oilers' power play is. And yep. no one's ever going to come out and admit this because the refs don't want to have an impact on the game, so they'll say they can't call every single infraction that happens. But when you don't call the infractions, you're also having an impact on the game. And it, look, it, it, every team has different strengths and weaknesses. And one of the Oilers' greatest strengths, if not their greatest strength, is their power play. And when they don't have the opportunity to use it because the refs are almost afraid to give them a call because the Oilers are running at a historic 56% with the man advantage, which is insane to think that that's the, how effective. There's a better than 50% chance that the Oilers are going to score every time the opposition takes a penalty. So, and the officials are aware of this. So they know that any time that there's a call, you're, you're, there's a, like I said, a greater than 50% chance chance that that you're you're giving the Oilers a goal. And they probably take that into consideration. And we've sort of seen where one game, they get a lot of power plays. The next game, they don't. Last night, they started to get power plays again. And I think that it's going to maybe go in that pace every other game where it's like they're, it's there's going to be certain nights where it's harder for them to draw anything. And then other nights where they seeming to get plenty of power plays. And obviously they made uh, some count last night, which we'll, we'll get to game four in a second, but just sticking with game three. Um, I, I was frustrated with that penalty Kane took because he, he was sort of acting like, well, they're, they're not calling the high stick. So I'm going to go do something now. And uh <laughs> It's right at the end of the period. They can see you skating full blast at Petrangelo as the seconds are <laughs> counting down. Not the best one by him. They killed it off, but then they give up a, a goal right after it too. So 
it's like it's such a momentum killer and you you don't want to start the period down a man either so i would just say i'm a, I'm a fan of kane as a player I, I i love everything he's done off the ice with sicily uh too and just um really ever since he's come to edmonton there's been nothing but good things said about the guy on and off the ice and he's an important player this team i think they badly missed him all winter you know like i said we didn't get to record a podcast together during the regular season but the three months that he was out that was a a huge hole in the lineup edmonton finished two points behind vegas in the standings uh obviously thanks to a incredible run down the stretch if you look back at where they were in january no one would have thought the oilers would even finish anywhere close to where vegas was but the fact that it came down to the last game of the regular season to decide who got the pacific division title that tells you how strong of a a finish the oilers had but i really think that if they would have had a vander kane during the uh november december january that would have only uh, increase their odds and put them in a better spot. So I'm looking forward to him playing a full 82 games next year too. Oh yeah, same here. And I agree with you with the with the bad penalties. And uh, he's not the only one that even does it. Drysaitel too, our playoff MVP. He he'll take those bad penalties and seems to be a bit of a theme throughout the lineup. I wish we could dial down those those seemingly when he Need gets it. frustrated, that's when it seems to happen. And it doesn't happen all the time. But if if things sometimes are not going the Oilers' way or uh, – and look, he, he's a guy who likes to sometimes get under the opposition skin too. He'll chirp the other team's bench. And, um, you know, you love to see that from your best players too, that they're not afraid to back down. But, uh, yeah, like there will be the odd time where – like do you remember in the first round that little – love tap he he gave Doughty on the on the shin pad that didn't hurt him at all just after an Oilers goal and he gets an unsportsmanlike penalty yeah. for that and put in the box but then uh Connor McDavid gets two-handed chopped down by Philip Deneau and there's no call so that's that's where my you know real frustration and anger comes in with uh, the the uh, lack of consistency and officiating but it's just I I look at uh I look at situations like that and say, come on, Leon, like, you know, they're, they're trying to get you off your game too and make you do something stupid. So uh, you got to avoid that. And, you know, for the most part he does, but like you said, there are times where it'll just kind of rattle his cage a little bit and he's uh, can't resist the temptation to kind of bite back. But you love the passion. (laughs) Oh yeah, exactly. Um. And I guess the last thing that I really want to dis- discuss with you about game three was uh, Stuart Skinner getting pulled for the second time in the playoffs. And Skinner, like the Oilers as a whole over the course of game three, didn't have his best night. Uh, Jack Campbell has played relatively well in two relief appearances in the playoffs so far. Uh, Kevin, did you think that we might see Campbell start game four? Not at all, especially after Skinner started um the next game after that rough one against la i fully believed that woodcroft was going to come right back at skinner uh skinner earned throughout the throughout the season he earned the spot to be the starter in the playoffs and uh i don't think there's any benefit in flip-flopping from goalie to goalie just because of one bad game um especially in the playoffs uh, i think if you stick with your guy and he knows he has that confidence from the coach 
Um, especially a guy like Skinner, who is so good after like like after a bad game, after he gets pulled, bounces he back, lights out the next day. So why wouldn't we go right back to him, right? And every game that he plays in these playoffs, that's just more experience that he gets, and that's preparing him for next year when they're back in the playoffs and they're back making another run at it, regardless of how deep they go here, if they whether they're eliminated here or if they win the cup. He's going to be their guy again next year. And this experience that he's getting is going to be invaluable. Oh, yeah. I mean, well, he's I'm, mature I'm beyond his years. For a, for a 24-year-old rookie goalie, he plays like a guy who's got 200 games in the league. And, you know, that's this is a, he's a guy who could be the Oilers starting goalie for 10 years, realistically. Yep. Um, and this is just the early stages. He's going to get better from here. I also thought, like I said, even though it wasn't his best night overall, he still did come up with some big saves. I mean, he stopped Jonathan Marcheseau on a a point-blank opportunity right before he got pulled. And he he fought to keep his team in it, but the reason they lost wasn't on Skinner's shoulders. It was a team effort where they, they came out flat. They didn't play up to their, uh, their own standard that they've set for themselves. But, uh, you know, he was sort of the culprit there getting yanked. And I honestly yeah. think that when they, when Jay Woodcroft pulled him in favor of uh, Jack Campbell, I think that had more to do with just a wake up call for his bench and for you hope yeah. for the team. And you almost hope that that's just sort of like, something that gets the guys going more than anything to do with Skinner. It really worked in game four uh, in LA. If you remember the Oilers were down three, nothing in the first period, he pulls uh, Skinner after the the first Jack Campbell starts the second. And from there, the Oilers rallied to tie the game and end up winning in heroic fashion with Zach Hyman getting the OT winner. And obviously that didn't happen in game three, but it, it is still sending a message to your bench that you guys like you've hung the goalie out to dry here. He is making some big saves for you. Like, sure. He did let in four still, but it could, that that score could have been a lot more lopsided if Skinner doesn't come up with a a couple of huge saves. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, I totally agree with you that the game wasn't on him, him getting pulled even wasn't because necessarily of his play because of his play because it's not that he was having a horrible game but like you said it was I think I totally agree that it was a wake-up call for the bench and he sadly didn't respond although they did respond the next night and we will move on to game four now uh the Oilers scored three goals in a span of seven minutes and 16 seconds in the first period en route to a 4-1 victory and knotted up the series at 2-2 Nine different Oilers skaters picked up a point in the game, and most notably, Ryan Nugent Hopkins buried his first goal of the playoffs. Kevin, uh, how encouraging was it for you to see the Oilers get more contributions from throughout the lineup? It's something we've been seeing all year long, right? Like the Oilers now have that depth that it doesn't have to be just dry settle, it doesn't have to be just McDavid. They will now get contributions from their fourth line, from their third line. They'll get energy from them. Their first goal again was from from their from their depth and just the fact that they can roll more lines out there and expect goals or at least chances 
and it's not and the onus isn't just on dry settle and mcdavid every every game every shift every period um that's the reason that they're going to have a chance for the cup this year yeah and i mean look at who scored the goals they they got a goal from a bottom six forward to start the game uh two defensemen scored and uh one of their top forwards who had been on a, a nine game scoreless drought ends ends that streak and finally finds the back of the net so that's pretty big also shout out to ken holland because both of his trade line acquisitions scored in that game matthias ekholm and nick yeah. <laughs> so good work i mean they've done a lot more than that since they came over but uh you know when both of the guys you pick up uh before the deadline can uh score in the same night that's a that's always a big thing for this group it looks like just a trademark clapper that Ekholm is showing us, eh? Yeah, that was also his first playoff goal in five years. I looked up last night, going back to uh, the 2018 run, I believe, with Nashville. But um, and, and Bukestad, he scored three goals in his last six games. I mean, that's good contributions from a, a third line center who, you know, is a guy who you can also get out there to win face-offs and kill penalties. That's his primary responsibility yeah. on this team. But when he's scoring every other game on average over a six-game span, that's a huge help too. Exactly. And when you know that you're going to get at least a couple points or a couple goals from the duo of McDavid and Drysdale, well, you know that's you're true. getting those. You can, you can get a couple extras from your bottom six. That spells a win just about every time. Well, look, the, I mean, the Oilers led the league in goals with, I believe, 325 this year. As great as McDavid and Dreisaitl are, you don't score 300-plus goals as a team unless you have good depth, too. Exactly. Um, and let's talk about uh, McDavid and Dreisaitl now, because uh, even though they did get uh, some, acquis- or some extra additions from throughout the lineup, uh, the big guns still did chip in in this one. Uh, Dry Seidel picked up his uh, league-leading 18th point of the playoffs with an assist. McDavid also recorded two assists, uh, giving him his seventh multi-point game at the playoffs. And recently, he just became the first player in NHL history to record six consecutive multi-point games in back-to-back years. Just, you know, unbelievable how this guy's performed in the playoffs. And it's crazy to think that. Some people thought he was having a bad first round. Do you remember that when he, uh, they, they thought that he was having a, he, I think he had eight points in, in five games and they were saying that he hadn't uh, had a big moment in the playoffs yet. I mean, like he set the standards so high that especially scoring 64 goals this season, they had, it seems like if he's not finding the back of the net every night, even if he has a three assist game, they almost think that he's having an off game. Some critics. Exactly. Like, like, what is that even? He was, what, third overall in scoring or something like that after the first round? And he's yeah. slumping. <laughs> and now he's tied for second, I believe, with uh, Kachuk. In, and he's only one point back of Dreisaitl. So, like, these, these two guys over the past two years have been absolutely phenomenal. And, like, Dreisaitl scored six goals in the first two games of this series, setting an NHL record for... Uh, the most goals through any two games, the first two games of any playoff series. Um, and Connor made a little history of himself last night. Uh, two milestones in particular. He became only the fifth player in NHL history to record 170 points 
in a single season, including playoffs, joining Wayne Gretzky, Mike Bossy, Mario Lemieux, and Yarmer Yager. He also recorded his 100th assist of the regular season and playoffs combined. And he is only the ninth player in NHL history to record multiple 100 assist seasons, including playoffs. We didn't have a chance to talk, like I said, uh, since last summer. So I just want to, before we even break down, you know, his contributions in the game, when you start talking about 170 points in 92 games between the regular season and playoffs, I haven't seen a, a season like this since I started following the game in the mid to late 90s. Like this is the best since Lemieux in 1995-96 when he was in his prime. Just Kevin, I want to get a thought from you since we haven't uh, talked. What do you? Uh, what can you say about the season that Connor McDavid has had, has had that has now continued on into the playoffs? Well, I don't know how many times it's been throughout, even throughout this season, not not even including the rest of his career, but how many times you just you're watching the game and you think, how lucky are we to be able to watch this guy play every game? Like, he picks up the puck, and you know something's going to happen just with every time. Like, yesterday, there were a couple moments where he has just a little bit of open ice, and you can see he's just That's all there. he needs. If you give yeah. him just a second of daylight, he can create and magic. And he comes flying in the zone, and you know something's going to happen, that there's going to be a chance, and most of the time it turns into a goal. Like, how lucky are we? As Oilers fans, I don't think we even even realize it. I was saying this to my friend the other day. Most NHL teams have never had a player anywhere close to as good as Connor McDavid is. Most franchises. And the best that McDavid can ever hope to be with the Oilers is number two. Because <laughs> Wayne Gretzky is number one forever, obviously. Uh, I mean, the the records that he set and the the 200 point seasons and all the offensive milestones that he hit along the way during his nine NHL seasons in Edmonton. I mean, no one will ever match that McDavid. If he spends his whole career in Edmonton could uh, finish with more goals, assists and points because, you know, he's, he'd have a 20 year time period to do it where Wayne had, you know, just about a decade. But the point is, is that, you know, no one is ever going to surpass Wayne Gretzky in terms of, greatness to this franchise or the nhl but that just shows you how lucky we are that even we're watching a player as special as mcdavid and he's still only number two um, in in this franchise's all-time lists whereas you look around the league there are talented superstars almost on every team almost virtually if you look around the league every team has an elite player but no one is even close to Connor McDavid right now. Yeah, that's right. And do you think that McDavid is good with being number two, like the number two best player the Oilers ever had? He's going to do something he's, special. He's such and... a competitor that I think yeah. he'll be. He'll be. But here's the thing. So Wayne, Wayne captained the Oilers to four Stanley Cups. Uh, if McDavid wins even one Stanley Cup with the Oilers, which he could do this year, then that almost cements that he will get a statue next to Gretzky someday when he retires. 
Um, oh, yeah. Like I said, he could score 2,000 points in his career. He could score 700 goals. He could end up being the Oilers' all-time leader in all these offensive categories, playing 20 years with the franchise. But what Gretzky meant to this team and, and this city, I don't think anyone can ever compare to it. And the fact that we're even having conversations where McDavid is pushing some of the marks that Gretzky's done, like I just said the other day, uh, becoming all, the first player to ever have six consecutive multi-point games in back-to-back years. Not even Gretzky has done that. And there are this year during the regular season, he had three different 15 game point streaks. He had a five game multi-goal streak. These are things that Gretzky didn't even do in his career. So the fact that Connor is even pushing him, that just tells you what a special talent we're watching night after night in Edmonton. I'll echo what you said. We're so lucky because anyone can watch McDavid on TV, but to have him as the best player on your favorite team, that just makes it even better. Yeah, it sure does. And I can't imagine being a fan of a different team watching. Oh, we're so spoiled. (laughs) I mean, do you remember? It seems like a lifetime ago now, but there was a time when the Oilers went nearly two decades without having a point per game player. You know, Alishemsky came close a couple times. Uh, Taylor Hall was the first one to do it since Doug Waite. And I remember when Hall got his 80th point back in 2013-14 and saying how awesome that was that the Oilers finally had an 80-point player again for the first time since 2001. And now you have players like McDavid and Dreisaitl who are finishing with over 80, you know, like Connor had 89 assists this year. Uh, Dreisaitl had 128 points, tying Kucherov's previous mark for the most in the salary cap era. And it was still far behind McDavid, who finished with an otherworldly 153 points. Like, that's the type of talent that we're getting to watch right now. And if you've ever talked to someone who was uh, a hockey fan back in the 1970s, they, you've probably heard them talk about uh, Bobby Orr or fans who were around in the 1980s telling stories about Gretzky we are going to be telling stories about McDavid 30 years from now. And the next generation of hockey fans who aren't even born yet are going to be, you know, asking questions or, you know, wanting to know how good he was or how he compared to the the star of their era. But we'll talk about him in in the same, uh, the same breath, the, the the same greatness that, that you hear uh, an older generation of fans talk about players like Orr and LaFleur and, Gretzky and Messier and Lemieux. Yeah, that's that's absolutely right. It's hard to even think of yeah, the future, but <laughs> I know what you mean. It's 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 way down the line, and hopefully we have some Stanley Cups to talk about uh, as we get there too. There better be some Stanley Cups in there. <laughs> I can only imagine that uh, that that will eventually follow. Um, so. The last thing we're going to talk about now is uh, probably the, the biggest storyline to come out of the game. Uh, it, it dominated the headlines even more than the McDavid milestones in uh, Game 5. And that is that there was two suspensions handed out in the game as we came to learn today. We're recording this podcast on Thursday. Uh, it'll 
be probably published tomorrow before uh, game five. But uh, we found out today that Darnell Nurse and Alex Petrangelo were both suspended one game for separate incidents. Uh, with uh, Vegas's empty net, Dreisaitl was powering his way down the right wing and tried to dump a backhander towards the open goal. It went wide, and then moments after the puck had already gone, Petrangelo took a vicious two-handed slash at Dreisaitl's wrists, and that warranted Connor McDavid skating over into the scrum, and a five-minute major and 10-minute game misconduct were handed out to Petrangelo. But uh, I, for a second, I actually thought we were going to see McDavid in his first NHL fight, which had me terrified, too, of him. <laughs> breaking a hand again like he did in junior or, or just losing the fight and getting hurt. But um, that play, I thought for sure, would be at least a two-game suspension. I and, was absolutely shocked that it was And then we find out hours after the nurse announcement because then it, it came down earlier today that uh, Darnell Nurse was being suspended for dropping the mitts with Nick Haig in the final minute of, of the game. And he was uh, assessed um, an instigator penalty in the final five minutes, which they said a carries an automatic uh, one game suspension, which can be appealed. Uh, Sportsnet later tweeted that it happened twice during the regular season. And both times it was rescinded. So you're wondering why that didn't happen now. I honestly have a theory that this is once again, the NHL's player safety along with the officiating working together to make sure that it's balanced and that they don't take one team's top pairing defenseman out and uh, leave the other team's number one defenseman in the game. So did you get the sense, Kevin, when this happened that they were both going to be assessed the same length of suspension? Or did you think that, nurse might not even be disciplined or, or just get a fine and we would see Petrangelo as the one with the longer suspension. Here's the thing. I figured for sure that one of two things was going to happen. The nurse would have his his instigator penalty rescinded and not be suspended and then Petrangelo get one game or if they're going to stick with the nurse uh, the the nurse suspension and give Petrangelo two games because That's that was I thought. I thought for sure I would say it would have warranted even a third game because that was that slash on the MVP of the playoffs so far you can't tell me that that wasn't an intention it was intention. not a hockey play at all that was an intent to injure there was nothing else there the fact that he took his stick above his head and axe chopped it down I mean, thank God that Drysaddle didn't break uh, his wrist there. Can okay. you imagine? Can you imagine if Drysaddle was out for the rest of the playoffs with that? I I think he has some type of wrist guard on that probably uh, softened the blow a little bit. And I I think the stick almost comes down and grazes past his face as it's happening. He could have been caught in the face on a downward motion with that stick coming down like an axe. It could have been far more gruesome than it was. And we know that the NHL has a history of suspending players based on uh, what happened to the, the player who, who suffered the blow. So like if Dreisaitl would have been injured badly, then you think that the, the Petrangelo suspension would have been longer. 
And when they found out that he's fine, and like I said, thankfully he is, that probably had an impact on their decision as well. Oh, yeah. And because game management by the officials isn't enough, now we're doing series management. <laughs> yeah. Makes a lot of sense. Now, I, I mean, I'm. it's, it's still going to be hard to replace that, that those minutes that uh, Darnell Nurse plays. You're going to have to elevate Ekholm and Bouchard up to the top pair now. You're probably going to have to drop Cody Cece down to the third pair to shelter Philip Broberg. And then you'll have Kulak and Dayarnay on the second pair, which, you know, I am not a big fan of having Dayarnay that high in the lineup. But what what else are you going to do unless you call up uh, Demers or, or something like that? So it's, it's a tough situation to be in, but... Um, you know, Vegas is without their number one defenseman as well. And, and that's an advantage for the Oilers. But the fact that Jay Woodcroft was also fined $10,000 for uh, the incident, that means that Edmonton was actually punished more severely than Vegas was from that situation. And that's the thing that is really frustrating for me to see that there was a fight that went on with 24 seconds left in the game. And this is a fight Two that mutual made, combatants. And uh, Mark Stone said in his post-game presser last night that uh, Nick Haig had asked for the fight at the the previous face-off. So Nurse is, is going and fighting a guy who already wants to fight him and gets suspended for that. Like I know he skated all the way down below the opponent's goal line and uh, confronted the guy, but you're telling me that that warrants the same length of suspension as a player who tried to break another player's arm. It's just absolutely ridiculous. And and like you pointed out as well, the top scorer in the Stanley cup playoffs right now, how can the league not protect its top stars? They do more to benefit and protect the bottom six grinders than they do the players that actually get fans in the building that, that the fans want to see play. It takes me back to two years ago in the playoffs against the Jets when you had, uh, oh, why am I blanking on the name of the defenseman on the Jets who was all over uh, McDavid in that series? Um, I know DeMello was one of them, uh, but the, the fact that the Jets were able to just commit infraction after infraction on him and not get uh, called for anything. He didn't draw a penalty in that entire series. Like, you should be trying to do more to keep the players safe that are the ones that are, are selling tickets and the ones that are putting fans in the seats. And the fact that they want them to have to battle and grind through every shift because, you know, that's what the players back in the 70s had to battle through. And, you know, these guys should have to go through it too. I, I think that it's kind of a, an archaic system where they they should be doing more to promote these talents and not uh, hinder them. Makes a lot of sense, right? You want to promote the game. You want to get more viewers uh, from different markets and then pulling stuff like this. Make it make sense. It, it definitely doesn't make sense. Like I knew that we were going to be talking about this uh, on the podcast tonight but I was hopeful that we were going to be talking about Nurse only getting a fine or or maybe one game followed by multiple games for Petrangelo. So that was a 
that was shocking and angering really because like what message does that send to the rest of the league now that that is <laughs> only worthy of one game He's oh, just and the name, thinking it just, it just came to me the the name of the defenseman who was all over uh uh mcdave in that series neil pionk okay so yeah he he was all he was just got away with murder against in that entire series and uh you know we have seen mcdavid draw more calls uh you know this season probably than he's drawn in the past but uh i I don't want to get too much into the drawing penalties and officiating right now but the in terms of the safety thing like you you look at earlier in the game what set this off and and you were seeing uh, some Golden Knights fans on Twitter today who were uh, saying, yeah, he he deserved, uh, he probably deserves uh, a game, but, you know, he wouldn't have reacted like that if uh, if he hadn't been getting checked so much. Like, okay, so Petrangelo is getting hit more than he's used to getting hit, and the Oilers are playing him rough, so that is an excuse to try and break Dreisaitl's arm? <laughs> and and that's that's one of the things I was looking at for why I thought there, the suspension was going to be no less than two. There was yeah. clear intent to injure. He was frustrated from the no call when he was hit into the board, so obviously it was premeditated. Revenge is a factor. And that's something that the Department of Player Safety, that's what they look at. That's one of the factors that they look at when they're handing out suspensions. And it was all there. He even broke his stick on the slash. As soon as he collides there with McDavid, his stick exploded. And it doesn't just explode without being cracked or fractured, whatever, right? Like, that's for, how hard he hit him. Yes, and for anyone comparing what Kane did to Petrangelo the further game as, like, a precursor to this, I, I mean, I, we we talked about it. It was a dumb penalty by Kane. It was a reckless penalty. But cross-checking someone in the shoulder and the stick riding up a little bit into the chin is completely different from a player who is as big and strong as Petrangelo, lifting his stick six feet above his head and whacking it down hard on Dreisaitl's wrist, probably, I'd say, two full seconds at least after the puck is left. I mean, it was it was in no way to stop his uh, shot at the empty net goal. That was just a frustrated player who wanted to take it out. The game was out of reach. It was 4-1 uh, in the final minute of the game, and and he wanted to take a pound of flesh and you know he got one but like i said the the fact that dry popped right back up after and was kind of beaking at the the vegas golden knights bench uh on his way off the ice i said okay well leon can't be hurt too bad if he's in that good a spirit so that was a, a relief but i thought we were going to see the next two games of the series without uh, petrangelo and you know the, the other thing that this does is now you're opening the door for more rough stuff to happen in game six when especially at the end of the game. Are back. yeah at the end of the game if the score is out of hand you better be benching your top guys <laughs> yeah i mean look at how players were just getting thrown out of the game left and right last game uh yamamoto uh gets tossed for a misconduct for getting his stick somewhere near the the golden knights bench uh a golden knights player just barely clips uh uh, I mean, it was one of those accidentally on purpose plays where he bumps into uh, Stuart Skinner oh, as yeah. he's skating by the net. And you know that if it's a close game, uh, a Golden Knights player isn't doing that because they don't want to risk a penalty. That was just an attempt to 
piss off Skinner or try and get him off his game or something. And so he gets tossed. The refs were just handing out 10-minute misconducts to get the players who were starting problems out of the game and not have to deal with it. They want those seconds to tick down as fast as possible. And when you hear that 111 minutes were dished out between the two teams, uh, anyone who watched that game would know it's pretty easy to see why. Yeah, the refs, uh, they lost control of it. And And look at everything that happened going into that too. I mean, Clem Costin like getting... Uh, speared in the crotch. Uh, I know Mark Stone was uh, very frustrated about getting uh, cross-checked from behind by Kyler Yamamoto, and then the Oilers went down the ice and and scored. And I'll admit, that was a missed call against the Oilers. So, And I said that earlier in the podcast. The Oilers have got away with some calls in this series too, but the majority would still be in favor of the Golden Knights getting away with penalties. And then it, it was almost sort of some uh, revenge because it goes back to uh, when uh, Marchesso scored after Yamamoto was high-sticked in Game 3. The reverse happened in this game. Uh, a penalty w- should have been called um, for cross-checking on Stone. The Oilers come down the ice and Ekholm scores. So it was good to see that they at least got that one back on them. Yeah, for sure. But the biggest thing is you, you just want it called fair, right? Like the obvious stuff call it like don't make these judgment calls to try to affect the game to try to manage the game or the series right like i think that a penalty should be a penalty no matter when it's called whether it's october or if it's in june in the stanley cup final a trip is a trip a slash is a slash if you say that you're going to just be subjective about these calls or oh you don't want to give too many calls to one team or you want to even it up to me that's having just as big of an impact as if uh, you don't call them at all. So I, I don't love that, especially, you know, we, we talked about how strong the Oilers power play is. We want to see it, but I would rather that the Oilers players get called for every infraction they commit. If it means that every infraction, the opposition commits gets called too, because with the elite skill that the Oilers have, I'm confident that Connor McDavid would draw enough power plays that the Oilers would be, on the man advantage more often than the team they're playing. Exactly. And with the game the way it is now in the NHL, comebacks are king. Teams left. And they right, happen way they're more. Coming back from two goals, three goals, even four goals. And that's still not typically enough in the regular game no. to guarantee a win. Just because you're up three, for example, in the game. You didn't, after you the didn't first used period. to see that years ago. And now it's so common. Yeah, exactly. So if you're if you're not calling stuff just because the team's up 3 nothing, well, you're giving the other team a chance to get back into the game. So you're affecting the outcome of the game. Absolutely. I mean, I don't know about you, Kevin, but when I was watching that game and it was still 3 nothing in the second period, I, I was saying, oh, you know, the Oilers really need another goal here. You know, like they just to, yeah. just to, ma- just to make me feel that much more confident. And after Nugent Hopkins wired that shot home and it was four nothing i said okay now they're probably home safe but because i don't think skinner's gonna let in five tonight but i just said even at three nothing i mean it was it was three nothing in the first period there's a lot of time left and even though i think that the oilers are the better team the golden knights are still a very talented team and they can you know they can mount a comeback as well 
Yeah, exactly. Like, just look at the Kings game. How easy that can happen. Yeah. After the first period, if it's 3 nothing, all you need is one in the second. It's suddenly a two-goal game. Two goals and, can happen real fast. And the Oilers have had to adjust to two vastly different teams. I mean, you look at the Kings. They basically had no forecheck. They played that trap 1-3-1 style, just sitting back, waiting for you to make your mistake and that they would pounce on it. Vegas plays a lot similar to way to the way that Edmonton does. And you know what? Their depth might even be better. But what they can't match is the superstar elite talent that the Oilers have. They don't have a McDavid. They don't have a dry sidle. Uh, I'd go as far to say that even Nugent Hopkins, when he's on top of his game, can rival their best players. Zach Hyman was a, over a point per game this year. Like the Oilers have an elite uh, core at the top of their lineup, but they're not the top heavy group that they used to be either. They do have okay. more guys who can chip in. I would like to see Hyman score a little bit more. He, you know, had a, a couple in the first round, you know, one that even went off his face and in the net and obviously scored that, that overtime winner uh, gets him a, a little bit of a break too. Uh, but really he, he needs to chip in more. Nuge finally got one. He's been picking up the assists, but he needed a goal. And I'm glad to see that, that he finally got one too. Uh, going into game five tomorrow night, back in Vegas, Kevin, just, just to wrap up the show tonight, uh, can I get a prediction from you in game five and for the rest of the series? An outcome prediction? Yeah. I think the rest of the series is going to go for Edmonton. I think we're taking it in six. I think that uh, t- in tomorrow's game, there's going to be a lot of pressure on Theodore, who is going to have to step up in Petrangelo's absence, obviously. And... Uh, coming after a game that he he struggled in game four. He took two penalties early in the game. Edmonton scored on one of them, and Edmonton just kept cam- coming at him, and I think they're going to keep doing that this next game. I think Edmonton's going to come on top, come out on top, and I think they're going to finish it on the road, or at home in game six. I also called a six-game series before uh, this uh, the series against the Golden Knights started, and uh, we're still still got a chance to do that if they take care of business. How about a score for tomorrow night too? I'm gonna say five one. Seems to be the going another theme. blowout, and that's been what we've seen throughout this series is that we haven't seen both teams really on top of their game at the same time. Uh, game one was close in in that it was a a one goal game to the end before the empty netter, but Really, I, I like I said, I thought Vegas uh, was the better team in that game, and Leon Draisaitl almost single-handedly brought his team back into it. But um, I, I just feel like Edmonton's going to come out and and have a great effort. They won both games during the regular season in Vegas this year, and including one on my birthday, which was a great birthday present back in January. Thanks. <laughs> uh, and uh, of course, they uh, you know they they won game two there, so they know what it takes to win in that building and. Uh, actually, ever since Vegas came in the league, Edmonton's done well there. A ton of fans travel down to Vegas. Of course, there's more things to do in Vegas than just watch the hockey games. So they're able to make a bit of a weekend out of it. And the fact that it lands on a Friday night doesn't hurt either. But um, yeah, so, you know, it's it's loud enough in there that when the Oilers score, you can hear it. And uh, I remember especially that last game they played uh, in it in Vegas in the regular season. Edmonton absolutely dominated Vegas, especially in the second period. I think that was 
maybe their best period of the entire season. So they know what it takes to get it done there. Um, I'm hoping that uh, they'll bring that same type of effort that we've seen. And uh, I, I don't know if it's going to be a closer contest where both teams are, are sharp at the same time, but uh, I will go with a five, three decision for the Oilers. And I think they'll also wrap it up on Sunday in game six. Nice. Yeah. I think what we've seen, especially in the last three games, we've seen Edmonton on their game and we've seen Edmonton off their game. I think Edmonton is going to bring it their next two games. And I don't think Vegas is going to stand a chance. No, when, when the Oilers are on top of their game, there's no one that they can beat. And, and really, I think that whoever we play in the next round, like if the Oilers advance, they will have home ice advantage in the third round because the only team that finished ahead of them in the Western Conference this season was Vegas. So I think they'll have an easier test against either Dallas yeah. or Seattle. And then you get to the Stanley Cup final. I mean, the way that Carolina is playing right now, I think they're coming out of the East. So we might be getting a rematch of the 2006 Stanley Cup final. And wouldn't that be great to... Uh, get some revenge on them 17 years right, later yeah. and bring the cup back to Edmonton. Well, they just finished off New Jersey, so well, they're they're well on their way. Yeah. Well, man, uh, it's it's been great to talk to you again. Like I said, it's been about 10 months since we recorded the, our last episode, but we'll we'll definitely aim to do a, a couple more uh, in a shorter amount of time next season. And I just want to say thanks again for being on the show. Well, thanks for having me on the on the show, Eric. Yeah, definitely. And everyone, please go check out his page. It's at Oilers Digital. He's always uh, coming up with new wallpaper designs and stuff. And, you know, he's a great guy. If you give him a like and a a retweet and follow his page, uh, he always uh, will be glad to put whatever name and number you want. So that's awesome that you do that for the fan base, man. That's awesome. I'll keep an eye out for the giveaways, I guess. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. All right. Have a good night. All right. Thanks, you too, Eric. Take care. So for Kevin Newfeld, I'm Eric Friesen. This has been the 99 Forever Podcast. We're out.